Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. We often talk about a woman in a man's world, but what does this really mean and is it accurate? What is a man's world? A place where women are excluded from performing certain roles or jobs or are shackled to others? Is it to do perhaps with the balance of power? What power? Military, political, spiritual, social, domestic? There are so many forms of power. When we talk about a balance, are we including all of the above or just some? It has become a stereotype that a woman's power resides in the household. But does that translate into other forms of power? Does a woman's power really end at the threshold of the home? Joining us today is Shauna Lawless, whose debut novel, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men, examines power, most particularly women's power, in many forms. Set in 10th century Ireland, amidst the belligerent Vikings and greedy kings, you'd be forgiven for thinking this a man's world. But the story is narrated by two women, two mothers, whose desire to protect their children and secure their own positions makes them far more formidable, I think, than the men around them. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Shauna, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, Yes, okay. So my name is Shauna Lawless. Uh, I'm from Ireland. And I wrote a story called The Children of Gods and Fighting Men, which uh, is a historical fantasy. So it intertwines Irish mythology um, alongside the historical events of the 10th century, which were um, quite violent and, um, yeah, very, very... uh, intriguing and controversial so it was a really interesting period of history to delve into Um, and I've picked uh, two women to be my protagonists and to kind of guide us through the the story. Well I think you can probably guess from my introduction that I really enjoyed your novel I thought it was really clever Um, and I particularly liked the way it defied a reader's expectation of its setting um, because I wondered whether there still exists this automatic assumption that historical novels, especially those set in an era, you know, with Vikings, for example, this is very male. Um, is there an expectation that these books will feature male protagonists and in particular, like male stories? I think so. Uh, and I think a lot of that probably comes from, you know, whenever you are writing, there's a huge kind of drive and thoughts that the writing should always be active and that sometimes then translates into the characters being active and the decision makers so you know that they are the ones that are propelling the story forward so perhaps like a a tread of Bebenberg um, in the Last Kingdom series would be a sort of prime example of that Um, but of course if you always kind of want to have these active protagonists um you are you are having to then more often use male characters, and for me, when I wanted to write this story, I didn't want to do that. 
I kind of felt that story had been told quite a few times already. Um, kind of the male warrior or the male king. And I, I, I wanted to do something different. And I think women are often overlooked. And there is definitely a lack of female protagonists in this era. Uh, oh my God, Uhtred. Uh, I just finished watching The Last Kingdom a few months ago and I I, comp- I loved it. I thought it was really well done. Um, but I have to wince at his, uh, you know, being Uhtred's woman really doesn't end well. No, it's worse in the books. If you've read the books. Um, I haven't. Yeah, no. he, he has more women. <laughs> I think they cut them down for the TV series. <laughs> They all meet a sticky end one way or another. I know, I know. Um, I, I think kind of Itred is sort of the James Bond of the historical fiction. <laughs> the Last Kingdom, I think it, it probably first came out 20 years ago. And I think it is a book possibly of its time where the female characters were less prominent. And then as the series progressed, we kind of got um, Ethel Fled being a bit of a more prominent character, which... I certainly preferred. Um, I really like Ethel Fled as a character. And she she's actually a female character from history that did have a lot of power, uh, which translates really well into the TV series as well. But yeah, but yeah, no, I, I do. I love the Last Kingdom series. Um, and I thought the TV show was done very well. But yes, <laughs> there's certainly a bit of a, a James Bond um, theme going on there. Isn't that the um, Bernard Cornwall ones? It is. And isn't he the one who wrote Sharp, who is effectively James Bond <laughs> at Waterloo? Yeah. I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> well, it sells very well, obviously. <laughs> well, you were saying that, you know, we don't see as many women in these settings. And when we do, they're never, you know, pr- they're very rarely protagonists. And this reminds me of, you know, when 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 questioned or challenged on this subject, um, you know, many authors come back with this argument about, well, oh, well, women didn't have that much power. And, you know, I'm trying to be historically accurate. But I mean, from your research, is this true? Um, were women's roles as prescribed as popular belief considers them? Well, whenever I was researching Ireland, Gormla is a real historical character. So she is mentioned a few times in various historical documents. Uh, and I have used, like, well, a lot of the documents refer more specifically to what happens in book three, but I've used this information to form her character and kind of what would have happened in books one and two. But she is unusual, actually, to have been documented so much. Um and I think that is just the, the unfortunately the lack of records that we have in Ireland at the time, and the fact that monks recorded a lot of these records, and they just are very focused on the kings, who was king, who fought at what battle, who won, who lost, and so you don't get the the women or the queens mentioned very often, other than they got married or they had a child or they died. So, but then, you know, that is just the recording of history. That isn't actual history. And I think if you try to imagine, go back into the time, and I'm using kind of legal records, um, archaeological digs, 
um, as well as as what we have written. And I'm trying to build up a picture. And I do think women did have power uh, during that time. Um, the legal system in Ireland certainly is written um, kind of quite more sympathetically to women than other European countries. And so I try to imagine a land where women are not downtrodden, but they cannot hold power in Ireland. It's actually impossible for a woman to be a queen in Ireland the way it is possible in England. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. And so I wanted to put that into my two female characters and that they're not badly treated. They are allowed to talk. Their opinions are requested and asked for. But ultimately, they don't actually hold any of the power themselves. And that's slightly different. I was really interested in the sort of Viking setting and or Viking timing, I suppose, rather, um, because when I was researching the Vikings, I was sort of concentrating on Iceland and the traditions there. And they had something called the All Thing, which was sort of like a big parliament. And yes. people, you know, got sent to it and things like that. And if if men weren't there, the women could go in their place. And actually, yes. it seemed that Icelandic um, society around this time was quite advanced for women. And like you say, they weren't necessarily recorded and their decisions weren't there, but it was clear that they attended. So did you find something similar in Ireland or was it still very, very patriarchal? Ah, uh, So that is interesting. So... Gormla, one of my characters, is Queen of Dublin. So Dublin is a tiny piece of land in Ireland at that time that the Vikings have complete control over. So it is ruled completely differently to Ireland. Um, it's, you know, they, they have their own traditions, their own laws in this bit of land, which is different to the Breton laws, which will which control Ireland and the Irish kings. So in my book, Gormla actually does proceed over a thing, exactly as you described in your research for Iceland. Uh, and she is able to make decisions um, uh, for, for the people who come forward with complaints. So that is, but that is different. That is um, kind of using the Viking culture to show that, that Dublin was managed differently. In Ireland, however, it is completely different. So in Ireland, um, well, if I go to Europe, uh, the the kingship passed down to the eldest son, uh, and then occasionally a daughter would be eligible to in to ha- inherit um, the throne. So we obviously know like Elizabeth I, Mary, um, and older examples like Ethelfled and Queen uh, Maud, although she had trouble becoming queen. But in Ireland, it's just not possible. In Ireland, it's not even the firstborn son that automatically becomes king. It is anyone within five generations of a king can become the next king. So there, there could be like 20 men in the family who are eligible to be the next king. So power does not transfer at all through women. There's never any like even remote possibility that a, a woman would be queen. So it's just, it's a very different society that way. And I think because of that, because of that lack of even the possibility of power, uh, women don't really feature within the kind of court. So kind of the powerful people that would live in a king's don would be the law, the Breton. 
So he would be the person that would tell the king what the laws were whenever he had to rule over a judgment. There would be um, the like Olam, and I suppose before priests, it would have been like the Druids. Uh, and women, you kind of, it's not that they're not powerful because when you look at mythologies, queens are powerful. And it's like a, but in a family dynamic kind of way, rather than they actually have powers and duties conferred onto them, if that makes sense. Yeah, this, um, it kind of intersects with, uh, you know, my next question, which was to do with class and social standing, because it's very interesting how, you know, you were saying that there's no possibility of power in the sense that a woman can become a queen or, or monarch or ruler. Um, and yet, this is what we often associate um, with women in historical settings. Their power derives from their standing, from their bloodlines. Um, but you know, saying in your world, this is this is more um, nuanced because even though you've got someone of high social standing, they're not a peasant, they're not a slave. That is not a natural. Um, you know, it doesn't give them power naturally like they by dint of their birth um i think that's really interesting because we just usually assume that power comes from um wealth and privilege yeah well there probably is that in ireland in the sense that if you look at who the kings are marrying they are often marrying women from other royal families so there is a class system within ireland um and funnily enough i was doing research and uh, there was one one passage I read that said how many colours you are allowed to wear in your cloak uh, would would tell you at what kind of class level a person was. So a king could have seven colours in his cloak and a prince could have six. And then there'd be, you know, craftsmen and poets, the the lawmakers, um, and down until you got to someone who owned their own land and they would just have one colour. So... You know, Ireland it is very complex and it's very, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's different to the rest of Europe. I think because the Romans never came to Ireland, the, the Christian influence comes much later in Ireland. And actually at the 10th century, when I'm writing, Ireland has converted, but very poorly. So even though they say they're Christian and they have built churches and they've taken on uh, Christian saints, they are still really living a pagan lifestyle. So it's still the old laws, the old traditions that really govern day-to-day life. Um, so sorry, I, I think I've gone off topic here. <laughs> God, no, not at all. No, it's really interesting. I'm sorry, I was actually writing down um, the thing about the cloaks because <laughs> I thought that was so interesting. Um, yeah, it's like those little historical tidbits that I think bring a world to life. Yeah, I got lost into telling you all that and then I couldn't remember the original question. It's all right. We're all history nerds here, so it's fine. (laughs) I wanted to ask if the colour, if the cloak thing and all the different colours that you were allowed to wear, whether that was, like it is in other parts of you, related to the cost of the dye? Is it a case of you can have more colours because you can afford more dyes and if you're sort of lower down, it's like, well, I can only afford one? Or is it more symbolic than that? I think it's symbolic. Um, I, I do because I don't th- think it's to do with necessarily affordability. Because I don't, I, I don't have it 
overlay in my head that the Irish kings were particularly wealthy. Maybe by the time we're getting to the 10th century, some of them are. But prior to this, um, I don't think so. And the reason for this is that there are literally hundreds of kings in Ireland at this point. There are, there could, if you if you know Ireland at all, um, in the 10th century, there are maybe about seven provinces. Now you would look at Ireland and there are four. So you would have your provincial king. So say there's six or seven provincial kings. You would have a high king that was over them. But then under each provincial king, there could be 50 kings within their province. So, and you know, there's no word like earl or duke or lord. It's just king. Um, so I don't think all of these kings would have been particularly wealthy. Some of their land holdings might have been quite small. So I think it's the, the symbolism of having more coloured threads in your cloak is a status symbol as opposed to a display of wealth. And also, if you look at the archaeological records, um, kings lived in duns. Um, and they're not massively different to what we would call a rath, which is where the people lived. You know, they're not living at this stage in these like, massive castles or huge fortresses. They're living a re- relatively normal life, fairly similar to the other people around them. So I, I just, I, it doesn't quite ring true to me that it would have been um, that the kings were massively wealthy and could afford all these extra colours. To me, it's just a status symbol and a kind of way to, to structure society. I wanted to ask about the women within this sort of class of society, because you're talking about having lots of different kings and you're talking about people within five generations being able to claim kingship. So if you happen to be married to a king and someone five, and he dies and someone five generations comes along and says, actually, the kingship is mine, what happens to that woman? And, you know, what happens to the women who get moved up with the kings? I mean, it just, because if you think about kings and queens in England um, and sort of that area, once one king falls, it's pretty bad news for the queen or she gets married off or she's traded off here, there and everywhere for, you know, um, other alliances. But with it being such a wide scope of people who could be king, I wondered what happened to the women who were married to them? Well, it is a clan system. So I if, I think, if, well, from my research, um, you do find a lot of queens end up dying in nunneries is one sort of common thread I have found quite often. So I wonder kind of maybe if a queen or a king is dies and the queen's left, are they sent off to the nunnery? Um, but, but then also there is lots of other evidence to show that they are married off to various other kings. Uh, so if I just kind of talk about the characters in my novel, um, the high king at the very start of the book is called King Sechnal. And his mother was married off to Amlav the Red. So Gluniarn, who is a Viking living in Dublin, shares a mother with an Irish high king. And, you know, I don't know if that would have been her decision (laughs) to kind of marry Amlav the Red, who was this like Viking upstart that had kind of conquered this land. It makes much more sense to me that once her king or husband was dead, that she was married to Amlav to make an alliance. So, yeah, I, I think women would have been married off potentially to other other kings. They possibly could have gone home to brothers um, who were maybe king in 
or like their own district. And then also there is evidence that say if their son became king, that then, you know, they obviously have a place still within that royal household and they don't have to move. Sounds far less bloody than it was in England, I tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there, there's not there's not a lot of evidence actually um, of, I suppose, cruelty um, to women at that time. In fact, Brian Brew, who's another character in my novel, um, his sister was executed um, because she was accused of adultery. Um, she was having an affair with her husband's son because um, she was a, a second wife. Um, and that was that was kind of denoted as being quite shocking that she was executed because um, div- divorce in Ireland was allowed at this time. You know, we're not in Henry VIII's times where if we're married and we need to get rid of a wife that we, you know, resort to de- <laughs> desperate measures. You know, divorce is very allowable at this time. So it was quite shocking um, that she was executed. And I think if, you know, if, if people are commenting in the, the 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 historical documents at the time that this is unusual, then I suppose you have to read into it that kind of cruelty to women, killing women because of their status isn't normal. You mentioned that a lot of queens might end their days as nuns in nunneries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did, I was thinking about, you know, the relationship between religion, organised religion and women. Um because actually in some of my own research in a later, actually, you know, it would have been earlier Anglo-Saxon age. Um, it's about eighth century. Um, yeah. A, a lot of the women who, you know, had independence, gained that independence through becoming abbesses um, and, and founding nunneries or double monasteries. And um, yes, sometimes they were indeed the sisters of, of monarchs um, or, or ex, ex-queens, but otherwise women of lower standing could also, you know, for example, escape marriage that way um, and could educate themselves. Um, and I wondered if it, if there is a similar precedent um, in Ireland, if you did any research on that. Yes, I did do a little bit of research. Um, obviously, the the church in Ireland is actually quite independent um, at the time. And this actually is starting to cause conflict with Rome by the time we're in the 10th century. Uh, because they are now the land of Satan scholars, which you had in the sixth century, because Ireland was, you know, we're making these wonderful like manuscripts and um, kind of golden like treasures. And Ireland had this fantastic reputation. By the 10th century, Rome is sending kind of people and emissaries to Ireland and they are shocked because Ireland, they are seeing, has not converted very well. And they kind of the, the monastic houses and nunneries are being filled with um, royal family members, and they're getting all the kind of the bishop posts, the abbesses posts, um, and they are not the 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 church in Rome are not liking this because they're seeing that the church doesn't have any influence on the kings. It's actually the kings who are influencing the monastic houses. Um. So in that way, I'm not. We don't have that conflict between the church and the royal families that you see in the rest of Europe, because it's actually the kings who are still controlling those monastic houses. Um, so we're, I'm not seeing huge inc- like occurrences of 
uh, like the nunneries being in conflict or having to protect themselves. That doesn't seem overly to be the case in Ireland at the time. It's really interesting that you say that because uh, I mean it when I'm, I'm a bit of a history nerd and uh, I've been listening loads to You're Dead to Me, which is a BBC podcast about historical figures and so on. And it's it's very good. Um, uh, but uh, this morning, actually, I was listening to an episode about the board. Borgias, Borgias. I can't say that right. Anyway, in Italy, and it was all about how the these like really powerful families were actually appointing themselves cardinals, archbishops, and then even becoming popes. You know, by basically bribing people, and so they themselves, you know, the centre of the Catholic Church were doing precisely what you're saying that they didn't like the Irish doing. So I find that very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, because it, 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 yeah, power people are attracted to it, and I think you know, whenever you look at England, and you, you know that conflict that there was between the church and the kingship, you know, it, um, is it Henry the Second and and Becket? You know, it, it causes huge conflict having these two power houses that are are separate. Um, and even though I can see at the time the church wanted it that way, the church wanted to have control. Um, but yeah, you can see like if you have someone like Pope Borgia and he sees that there's this huge like place of power there, it, you know, it's not hard to imagine why somebody would want to manipulate that for their own ends, um, which is exactly what he did. This is reminding me to talk about the other, there's lots of aspects um, to your book, but another major one, and I think this kind of, um, you know, goes well with religion because often they butt heads, is the magical element. Because we, we've spoken a lot about history and the historical setting, but of course you also have um, magic in it. And um, particularly like both your female leads have access to magic, very different kinds of magic. Um, and I wondered how you went about, um, you know, weaving this magic you know, into a historical setting to make it, because it does appear very seamless, like it's very much a part um, of, of the, the, the general backdrop of Ireland at the time. Um, and, and whether this was also possibly a way to kind of even the odds that women didn't necessarily have a lot of power socially, um, but possibly if they have this magical heritage, it gives them an edge. So first of all, if you look at all the uh, Irish mythology that we have, it quite often is what I would say is historical fantasy because you have these mythological characters um, and they are interacting with kind of the kings and queens of the time. So a very famous story, which would be the, the cattle raid um, of Cooley, is one such example. So you have um, the Morrigan, who's a mythological character and who has magic. We have Cahillan, who is born of the Tuatha de Danann and is a fantastic warrior, but isn't overtly magical in other ways. And then you have the kings and queens and they're all fighting with each other. So when I came to write my story, um, it just sort of felt natural that there should be magical characters there. It didn't seem like an odd thing to do. And I think it's just because Irish myths and legends have so much of that, um, that it's kind of possible to have magical characters and mortal characters all interacting together. But then whenever um, I suppose I came to to developing my characters, 
So Gormla was the character that came to me first, and she's obviously a real character. Uh, the historians don't like her very much. Um, she is documented as being very scheming, a sort of wicked stepmother type character, uh, and provokes the male characters uh, and relatives in her life to go to war. Um, and I really liked that character. And initially, I kind of thought about some of the other female-driven mythological retellings that I had read where normally they take uh, a female character like a Medusa and they give her a more sympathetic story so you're getting a story from her perspective where this female character isn't the monster or the misrepresented woman that the original stories have led you to believe um, but with Gormla um, I just don't know. I just ended up writing the first chapter and she came out being very sharp and funny and driven and power hungry. And I kind of got to the end of the chapter and thought, well, why is that a bad thing? Because I think if I had a male character who was power hungry and driven, that would be, those would be like maybe positive attributes. And so I kind of wanted to make the story be more about are you judging her because she's a woman or are you judging her because of the decisions that she makes? And so whenever I decided to kind of have her that way and then to give her the fire magic because she is a Fremorian in my story, it all just kind of came together somehow and she is magical but she has to hide her magic is the other thing so she is actually much more powerful than any of the the male characters save for her brother in the story um but of course the threat of these descendants of the two Danann is what holds her back and so in a way the magic in in my first story cancels each other out because lots of the characters are afraid of discovering and I suppose as the series continues, will that fear of discovery lessen or decrease or increase? Sorry. Uh, and then at what point would a character decide that they're not afraid anymore and to use it? And why would they use it for good or for bad? So for me, it just added an extra layer of complexity to the story. And it's, it's, I suppose it's a kind of symbolic of when people have power, I think we all think we would do good with it, but would we? And so I have two very different characters um, who are trying to navigate the same country, mostly the same problems, and we're having a journey with the two of them and we are seeing how these two women decide ultimately to use their magic. I mean, I love that and I love that there's you have that suggested trajectory of the series. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, and I was saying that Gormla is still really powerful as a character, like you were saying. Um, and yeah, I wondered how you went about um, displaying her power without her falling back on she's magical. Yes. So for me, um, Gormla is a very intelligent character. And this is the skill that she uses uh, the best. Uh, and she is like more able to see the political dynamics than the male relatives who are actually ruling kind of Dublin or other places in Ireland. And that to me was key. I think that is where 
Um, I think if we look at political figures in today's society, uh, political astuteness is something that seems to have come to the forefront. Um, you know, if I think of maybe figures, and I'm not going to get too political, but say figures like Boris Johnson, um, you know, whether you like him or hate him or whatever, um, being politically astute as to where the tide is turning and going with it has probably been something that he has used quite well to get to to the positions that he has got to. And I, I looked at other political figures from history as well. And to me, and, and like aside from being like a firstborn son and, you know, it's your destiny to be king and to rule, most people who succeed and come come through these periods of historical conflict have to be very, very clever individuals. And so with Gormla, because she, she isn't going to the battles and she doesn't have command of the army, for her to be a, a compelling protagonist, um, her inner monologue had to be active. You know, you, you had to kind of see what she saw and kind of all these conflicts that she knows are coming and how she's already starting to pull strings before anyone else even is aware that, you know, a war is about to come. That for me was what drove the story forward and what made her a compelling character to read. Um, and hopefully, you know, as you're reading it and, you know, you're kind of, because it's in first person, I wanted you to feel involved in her scheming um, and to be excited about the plots and schemes that she had developed. I also find that when you're writing about a time in history that's quite a long way distant, putting it in the first person really brings it all alive and makes it more immediate as well. So it works quite well from that point of view. Yes. And she lies a lot as well. And I find first person is uh, an interesting way of showcasing that because the reader is in on the lie um, when the people she is speaking to are not. Uh, because you've obviously, and I don't have to tell you that Gormla's lying because you have heard her inner monologue and then you've read what she has spoken and you know that they are not the same. So that that is why I liked first person. And then also, I think it works well because we haven't spoken much about Fola and she's sort of a, a counterpoint to Gormla uh, because she doesn't want power for herself. She she really is looking for a way to make Ireland more peaceful and better for everybody. Um, and then, so I find by having them both in first person, but them wanting completely different things, it kind of gave you... I don't know, kind of that your head was in both perspectives and it allowed the reader to choose which perspective maybe they identified more with or kind of sometimes with Gormla as well, I wanted her to pull you along and for you to enjoy what she was doing and then be shocked sometimes as well where she makes a decision that I don't think many people would agree with. There is a memorable scene where she <laughs> basically stabs two men <laughs> in pretty quick succession, which I was, I hold my hands up. I was shocked. I mean, I, I'm still, I still root for her, but I thought that was really, really well done because I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Yeah. So that, well, because Gormla for most of the time is quite um, thoughtful in how she acts. 
and everything's quite premeditated. But of course, there are a couple of occasions in the story where her emotions or anger and fear get get hold of her and she acts in a much stronger way, um, violent way often. Um, and I that that also is something I wanted for her because I wanted you, when you're reading her perspective, to know that even though she sounds very sensible and she's got everything kind of together and she's very clued in, she can turn and she can turn quite quickly. Just something you said there was interesting when thinking about what you were saying very early on in this discussion about, you know, wanting to have characters who were active and this kind of being why a lot of historical fantasy settings, you know, focus on men as decision makers and so on. But it's interesting when you have these characters and it often, I find, especially in historical fantasy, it's kind of this default to the women being schemers and and women um, kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes a little bit, which on the one hand I love, but on the other I'm wondering sometimes like if this is a little bit why historical fantasy with female characters struggles a little bit to gain the same kind of readership because it's more, honestly, I find more interesting because it happens to be about, you know, the, the kinds of interpersonal conflicts and, and, you know, fighting your battles that way rather than, you know, lots of stabbing, although, um, Gormont does stab. So cool. Props to her. Um, <laughs> but I was just wondering, you know, like, because to me, this is a different kind of being active than that kind of traditional male way. It's maybe a more underhanded way, but it's still very much being active. And, you know, I'm just wondering, like, why if people necessarily, like, if, if people just go, well, you know, those people aren't driving the story. It's all about what story they're driving and, and like how that happens. I'm not sure I even have a question here, but it was just, it just got me thinking about how, you know, so many of the things that we, we get used to these kinds of adventure books or war books, or, you know, this great big thing, men going off to war, men doing these enormous decisions that are going to affect the entire world or whatever it is in, in that instance. And, when it comes to stories where women are front and center, we end up seeing them be active in a very different set of circumstances. I don't know. Yes. Well, I, I do. I do know what you're what you're saying. This is maybe the sort of Lady Macbeth dilemma, where women are active, but it's on yeah. hands. Yeah. Um, whereas when men are active, it's because they've made the decision and this is what they're going to do. Um, yeah. You know, they're they're is an issue though um but it doesn't have to always be there like there's definitely if you look in history there's female warriors there are warrior queens you know you've got Boudicca um you've got Queen Maud from the Anarchy period so there are those female characters though but I suppose there there are less and I don't know I think whenever I came to 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 writing this and we have the character of Gormla. And obviously book one has happened, but her character has a chance to develop in in books two and three um, and, you know, onwards from there. And so I think there, there maybe is a bit of an issue with 
female activeness, shall we say, in stories sometimes feeling underhand. Um, and like they're whispering into the king's ear and kind of telling them to do bad things, but not actually doing the bad things themselves. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I think historical fantasy is certainly a genre that has grown. I think we are getting more female-led stories um, and we're kind of maybe moving away from, you know, that this series is like The Last Kingdom, but there's loads of historical fiction Um kind of with with male protagonists you know uh like from david gamel to is it con Iggledon, i think i'm saying that name right um so no i i think kind of maybe the readership has always been there for those male protagonists but i think they've had maybe 30 40 more years at that at those stories and i think these female-led stories will gain readership um, you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you don't want to fall um, into parody. Um, kind of, as I said, like kind of making always these women to be a Lady Macbeth character, you need to find ways of making them different. Um, but there's certainly lots of stories out there. Talking about readership and what readers are looking for, I have to admit that since I became a mother, I'm really quite interested in reading about mothers in fiction. Um, But they quite often get fridged or otherwise excluded from the main story. So given that there must be other mothers like me out there and just people generally interested in reading about it, why are we not seeing more mothers as heroes themselves? Okay, so that is interesting. And I think possibly it's because when you're a mother, it's not that the mother isn't interesting. I think possibly audiences don't want to follow kind of a gaggle of young children around. Um, and I think, you know, whenever you are this mother character, you know, just naturally a large portion of your of your day is going to be cooking and feeding and clothing and playing and cleaning. And that doesn't necessarily make for an interesting story, although it can. It just depends on what story you want to tell. But for me, um, being a mother, well, because I'm a mother myself, you know, I, I look at myself before I had children and I really feel that whenever you're not even just being a mother, if it's an aunt or anyone that is responsible for another being, you grow in ways that you didn't think you could. And that is interesting. You know, so whenever we have Gormla and Fola, Gormla has this son that's the only person that she loves. And at the start of the story, pursuit of power on behalf of her son is her goal. So that's kind of what she sees is her duty. And that's interesting. You know, why why would that not be interesting? Um, and then we have Fola on the other side and she she's actually looking after her nephew, um, Brocken. Um, but for him, she wants safety and she wants peace and she wants a life that he can be happy in. And that's interesting. I think, I suppose maybe Fola as well, the, the thoughts that she has and the desires that she has are f- maybe more philosophical. You know, what, what does Ireland, what should it look like? What place could it be? How can her nephew live a life? But not just him, all the children live this life that could be productive and happy as opposed to always ending in conflict and I think we you know as a mother or um you know whenever you're an aunt or an uncle or a father 
you stop thinking maybe just so much about yourself and then you know you start to think about well what world am I leaving behind to to my children and to my grandchildren and they're they're interesting characters definitely to to think about and there are thoughts that move you away from the kind of I think what some people would be perceive as a mundane mundane kind of humdrum of being a mother which is doing the boring stuff but if you're kind of look examining women uh, and their thoughts I think you're seeing something that is really complex and very very interesting and that is why Fola especially you know I explore that a lot that's kind of her character arc in the story is trying to move away from what she's been told about people and trying to think how is it possible for me to leave Ireland a better place um, so I think the story of the mother is criminally underrepresented and as you say you get fridged you're kind of married to the hero husband and then you get murdered and then your husband has a whole story arc trying to avenge you <laughs> is kind of a lot of what happened in the 80s and 90s and kind of adventure movies and in books um but yeah i think i think that's that time is maybe over and we are getting a better representation in both movies and in literature and that the story of the mother is much more interesting and exciting if you kind of enable those thoughts to come out. It was really fascinating what you said about the characters wanting safety and peace for their children, because you're quite right as a mother or as a parent, anyone responsible for someone else, that's what you want. You don't want to go into battle. You don't want to go chase dragons or overthrow the monarchy. You just want something nice and stable and steady. So in some ways, parental characters can be quite risk averse. But I often find in writing that the other side of that is that if you do have characters who want to move things forward, that you end up kind of going, well, it's not really a motherly thing to do, is it, to stab two people in quick succession? That's not the kind of kind and caring mother we want to see, or at least more rather, it's not the kind we're used to seeing. So I think it's a very careful balance to put forward, oh, well, you know, I just, I want to keep my head down because I don't want my children to suffer and I want to give them a safe life. But at the other hand, I want to make it a better world. So it's a really fine balance for characters to walk. Yes, but I think um, with Gormla, um, the reason why she acts the way she does is that one of the characters is trying to remove her from her son. And um, for Gormla, um, she cannot survive without her son. And so she assumes her son cannot survive without her. That is kind of her perspective on it. And of course, you know, if you go through the story, I think some people have kind of drawn parallels with Gormla to Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones in that she thinks that she does everything for her children. But does she? Does she? Is that her excuse or is she doing things kind of trying to get into a more powerful position or her son into a more powerful position so her life will be better? So I sort of play around with that, with, with Gormla a little bit. Um, and I want the reader supposed to think on that sometimes. Uh, you know, is, is this truly just that she wants the best for her son? Or is there is there more going on kind of underneath the surface here that even she might not be aware of? 
I mean, I don't see how there could be anybody who is listening to this who is now not convinced um, to go and give your book a go. I thought it was it did some really, really interesting stuff um, with material that we we think we've seen plenty of times before, but you've given us a brilliant example of it done um, in a new way, bringing to light a lot of voices that we don't see or hear from very often so i yeah you get a, a really big endorsement from me um and the children of gods and fighting men is already out folks from um head of zeus books um and so you have no excuse not to to run off to the nearest bookshop uh, or amazon and download it at once yes it's it's on kindle unlimited at the minute and or 99p so um, definitely, you know, it's it's there for a bargain. <laughs> we love a bargain. I, I love a bargain myself. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us um, today, Shauna. It's just been uh, really fascinating, actually. And um, the best episodes are always when you know I find myself taking notes. So, thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for for asking. And I loved Sister Song as well. So. Um, which is also about women kind of trying to find their place in society. So, um, yeah, great, great minds must think alike. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.